The following content has been rated for mature audiences only. Viewer discretion is advised. Well, I'm not an expert. I'm not an authority. I'm someone who has been a murderer for almost 20 years. Maybe I should have killed four or five hundred people, then I would have felt better. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. There must be something in that. I showed emotion. You know what people said? See, you really can't get violent and angry. Welcome to The Squawk and the Hag, a podcast about murder, mystery, the supernatural, and even a conspiracy or two. Dun, dun, dun. My name is Mo. And I'm Kraken. Welcoming, guys, to another episode of the show. And this week is not a Krako tale again. No, but it is a spooky tale. It's a bit spooky. It's a bit murdery. And if you guys tuned in last week, you got to meet the amazing, wonderful ranger from our research team. And he's actually the one who researched this week's story for me specifically. We'll get into why in a little bit. But before we do that, before we get into our story, we have something special. We do. So uh, we've been saying, you know, we'd love to hear from you guys. Uh, use your experiences and tales of either uh, crime or. OK, I guess I shouldn't say that. If you commit a crime, please do not submit your story. Please go to the authorities. But if you have a hometown crime that is either a legend or a story that gets around, or if you've had some sort of supernatural spooky experience, we would love to hear from you. And we got a submission. Yay. Yay. It's someone I work with, so it's somebody I know really well. <laughs> but I'm still really excited because I didn't realize until recently that GJ listens to, like, every episode. I thought he was just going to be nice and be like, oh, yeah, your podcast is great. Yeah. But no, we have we have fans who knew. Yeah, he legitimately listens. And I was really excited. Um, so he is sort of local to where I live. You know, it's not like he's my neighbor or anything, but he's in the area. So it's a story from this area, which also ties into our main story for the week. And I'm going to read this verbatim straight from GJ. Jeej, this is for you. This took place in Yardley, Pennsylvania. It's a small rural town in Bucks County. Farmers are prevalent, and I was driving home around 1 or 2 in the morning from a buddy's house. After passing a cornfield, there was this white figure crossing the street. All white, long hair, sort of glowing unnaturally. As I approached, I slowed down to get a glimpse of what they looked like through the passenger side window. When I got close, it turned to face me, and I swear on my soul, where the face should have been was entirely blank. Like, no eyes, no mouth, no features at all. For a couple seconds, it seemed to match my speed and float next to my car facing me. I gassed the pedal and sped home, scared to death. Called a buddy to keep me company on the phone until I got home. Yeah, I, people should usually have faces. <laughs> you think? That's, that's kind of a thing with people is that they have faces. Yeah, well, I, I was kind of curious and um because Jeej and I had talked and everything and it sounds like it was either so it's this the same entity has multiple names of either a white lady a lady in white uh something like that but 
it is a spirit who had a horrible, gruesome death, as most ghosts do. But they often appear dressed all in white, long hair, and uh, pretty nasty. Pretty nasty spirits, so... I don't know how I would react to that. I probably would have ended up in that cornfield with my car, like, on its roof or something. Yeah, probably, but then that's how they get you. Because <laughs> that's the only thing out there that can rescue you at that, but that's, like, nearby. You imagine, you just, you, you end up in the cornfield, car's on the roof, you look out your window, there's the faceless lady. Uh, I'm never driving my car again. Things just got worse. Although, apparently, I was also, like, while I was doing some of my research, I didn't write down any facts, so I don't remember very much. But uh, Yardley actually does have a bit of a supernatural presence. There is the Continental Inn that a lot of people have seen um, some crazy, crazy shit at. And uh, uh, other stories just of hauntings and everything. So it seems like it's kind of a a little bit of a hot spot. You want to go? No. Actually, that does remind me when... Uh, Because it was in a group chat with a bunch of us and someone else had mentioned uh, Hellum in Pennsylvania, which is supposedly Seven Gates of Hell. Uh And they're like, you want to go? And I'm like, absolutely not. Actually, I told I told Andrew the same thing I always tell you. I'm like, you go wait for me there. I'll be around. You can get started without me. I'll be there. Just don't worry about it. I seem to hear that phrase quite often. Mm, I'm creeped out just talking about it. So we're definitely going to go. Got it. You got to come to Pennsylvania in order to do this. You're right. Anyways, uh, so thank you, GJ. I, like I said, story creeped me out still. And it's been like three or four days. It's not, not creepy at all. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> And if anybody else has, like I said, stories, we would love to hear from you. First of all, it makes us feel really special that somebody would want to share something like that with us. And second of all, I just love hearing this kind of stuff. Same, because usually like viewer submitted stories are going to be like, obviously not well known stories unless they like posted them and spread them online. So like you can find interesting stuff with like smaller stories like that. I have one. Uh, So there's this guy and uh, he kind of sounds a lot like you Mm -hmm. and he won't go away. So that's really creepy. It sounds like a stalker. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You know, you're my best friend. But if I come to Pennsylvania, if and when I come to Pennsylvania, I should say when, not if. You better say when. When I come to Pennsylvania. (laughs) Uh, we have to go to the place that uh, we're, we're getting ready to talk about. All right. We got to spend the night there. No. Yes. No. I will go, but during the day. No, we're going at night. We're going at like 3 a.m. No. Yes. No. 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 Absolutely not. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. So this is the last episode of the podcast. Never talking to you again. Bye. Goodbye. It's no longer me just leaving. It's me just like shutting everything down. All right. Block everyone. (laughs) Just get it all down. It's like, what happened to the podcast? I don't want to talk about it. What happened to Mo? She disappeared. (laughs) I'll buy that house that you had sent from the, what is it? Zillow Gone Wild that has the cave in it. Oh God, yes. I love it too, because it's like this beautiful house and it's like, you know, really well done, well built. It has this gorgeous door and you open it up and it's a cave. It's got like really nice, like midi uh, at words. What did I just say? (laughs) 
I don't know. It's got this nice medieval Victorian style to it. And then you open the door and it's just cave. Just a cave. There was another one I saw in there that literally has a cave under the patio out back. Like you go down there and there's like natural staircase that they carved into the cave. See, that sounds kind of lovely as long as... See, like the the one that you had shared with me looked like a a serial killer's lair type dungeon. It really did. Whereas this sounds like I'm imagining like, you know, maybe like trickles of water, some like pretty stalactites and stalagmites, maybe a little bit of like blues and greens in there, some like uh, cave plants, so like vines and stuff like that. Yeah, because this one, uh, this one they had actually wired lighting <gasps> in it, so it was actually fully lit up. So it, it's just like a cave. That <laughs> sounds pretty. Um, the other one was kind of nightmare fuel. The other one was just very nice, cozy home. Then you open the door and Buffalo Bill's asking where the lotion is. <laughs> you put the lotion in the basket. Yes. Okay. So into our story today. So a little bit of background as to why Ranger kind of looked into this one um, and was like, you know, this one's for Mo. <laughs> is that there's a little bit of murder and it takes place in Pennsylvania. And it's also a little bit of creep, a little bit of spook, a little bit of, oh, dear. So uh, it's going to be an interesting one. And uh, it is the Hex Hollow Murders. Have you ever heard of this, Crackle? It sounds familiar. That's why I like I had to Google it and look it up so I could see the place. I was like, I probably have heard of this at some point. I just don't remember exactly what happened. Nothing. Everybody's fine. Everybody's happy. They're smiling. There's a puppy dog. It's great. We just end it there. Yeah. Because I think the, another reason, like, I may have heard of this story before, but the one that I was thinking of was we, we may have to touch on it at some point, but it's the Fox Hollow Farm murders. Ooh, I don't know that one. So, yes, we do need to touch on yeah, that the, one. Yeah, I, I, might, I might write up something on that one, and I might bring that one to the table at some point, but that's it has a similar name. So I was like, is this, this the same one? It is not. I think I actually had kind of teased that I was going to be doing a serial killer. And uh, this actually, I swapped my weeks and we're going to do Hex Hollow. Uh, and then the next episode that we record, that I tell the story, uh, will be um, the Rostov Ripper. So next week is going to be another Krakow tale. And then after that, we are going to jump into the serial killer. Uh, Basically, it's a big, big one. And there's a ton of stuff out there and research. Like every time I think I'm done, I find more and I find more and I find more. That's that's going to be us with whenever we finally try to get into uh, MKUltra stuff is it's just like, well, wait, there's more. You're not done. There's more. I have two operations uh, kind of earmarked to look into for that one. But yeah, that one's going to so be. Many. Yeah, well, there's. They have officially acknowledged, and like the information is like heavily redacted, but they have acknowledged, I think, 130 operations as part of MKUltra. So there's a lot of content there. You want to know something else that used to be a joke, but now it's it's kind of real because I saw the video earlier today. You remember you remember the meme like birds aren't real; they're they're drones. Yeah. There's a video. Um, some people took. I don't remember if it was a government facility or what, so I'm not gonna say and and be wrong. But 
Some group took taxidermied pigeon parts and turned it into a drone. And when it's flying, you can't tell the difference than a regular bird in this drone. Uh, I don't like this. Well, I don't like this. So now the birds really aren't real. In happy science news. Is that a pigeon outside your window? <laughs> or is it a drone? I was going to say, in happy science news, uh, did you see that they're launching the first 3D printed rocket? Really? Yeah. So... They, uh, they, this is an, obviously an experiment, so it's unmanned, but they're going to launch it into an orbit around the planet. And depending on how it goes, eventually they're going to 3D print manned missions. But they, uh, it is, you know, using actual like metal titanium or, uh, I think it's titanium. It's for the parts and everything like that, but it's fully 3D printed so that they don't have to go and get this part from across the world and that part from over there. And, you know, they can all do their specified, you know, very specific, uh, unique parts. Uh, I guess the nose cone is like seven foot in diameter and like six foot tall. And it was 3D printed. Mm, Yes, those are numbers. It's supposed to give you... That's a massive 3D printer. Yeah, it is. It is. I don't know if it's as big as the ones that 3D print buildings, but it is a big metallic thing. I mean, it's probably close to that size, at least. I mean, they printed the whole rocket. Like, it was everything in the rocket. The nose cone, the the panels, the insides, uh, like, everything 3D printed. I mean, I guess it doesn't have to be too tall, you know, if if they're not printing it, you know, like vertically if they print it horizontally then it's then you just have a really long 3d printer <laughs> this 3d printer is 50 feet long yes yeah i'm not i didn't actually look into the printer itself i just looked at the you know the, the items that they were showing uh, of the, the pieces and all that stuff fair enough okay 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 into the story uh, <laughs> like somehow we got onto space. Distractions. <laughs> we got onto space. So the Hex Hollow murders. When you think of Pennsylvania, probably think of stuff like Liberty Bell, Steel, Chocolate. I know I think of chocolate a lot. Let me get lost in the sauce at Hershey Park. <laughs> I'm just sitting here and now I'm like, I really wish I had a peanut butter cup. If you're not thinking about chocolate like me, you might think of rolling hills or mountains. You could think of some of the bustling cities, and there is a ton of history in Pennsylvania. It is one of the original states, and, you know, Ben Franklin, yada yada. And this is going to be a quote directly from Ranger's notes, because I know he is so proud and I'm pretty sure he giggled about this for days. I'm sure he's still giggling about it, thinking about the fact that we're recording it tonight. Today, we are going to be talking about Merther in the Sylvania of Penn. It sounded like you weren't done with that last part and you just cut yourself off. I went to because I wasn't. I'm so used to saying Pennsylvania. So I'm like the Sylvania of Pennsylvania. Uh, I, it, 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 I, I almost kind of heard in the Sylvania of Penn. <laughs> I struggled so hard with it. I struggled so hard. <laughs> Did you have a stroke? Are you good? Call the bondulance. All right. So, yes, today we are going to be talking about a Pennsylvania murder. Uh, it's not it's not Ranger's wheelhouse. Uh, he did like he sent it over to 
the team and you know Allie and I were looking over it and everything like that but just because it's not his usual thing uh, he did an amazing job and I know he's a little nervous but I think it's fantastic so yeah I think it'll be fine it's fine you know he usually does the spooky stuff he does and he does it well and then Allie usually does the murder stuff but then she did Roanoke and that was amazing yes good combo of history and spooky and this is why we're such a good team yes because it makes us seem like we know what we're doing when really we have no clue yeah no clue whatsoever not at all this tale i know the beginning's a little lighthearted, it's as usual and i know Krakow and i tend to be a little silly because that's how we deal with heavy things but uh this one does it deserves respect it is a very complex tale so on November 27th, 1928, three individuals, uh, 33-year-old John Blymeyer, 18-year-old Wilbert Hess, and 14-year-old John Curry came to the cabin of a man named Nelson Rymeyer under the assumption that Nelson had cursed them all. And after a brief but very violent altercation, they murdered him in his home. That that escalated quickly. It did. It did. So we're going to dig into more depth and everything. But that is um, sadly how we got here. So in the 20s, the Keystone State, Pennsylvania, had a lot going on. The Great Depression hadn't quite started yet, and things were just moving right along economically. There are large cities like Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, but there's also a ton of rural communities uh, back then and even today. One area like that is uh, York County. There, uh, It's still actually quite a bit. So York County does have a city named York, and it's not too far from Lancaster. But in between, it's a lot of farmland. It's a lot of uh, there's a huge Amish community in the area. So it's it's like city farms city <laughs> and that kind of very flat, not necessarily flat. They uh Pennsylvania does have quite a bit of change in elevation, whether it be hilly or mountainous, but pretty much most of the state, it's like city, farms, city, farms, city, farms. Fair enough. I, I, when I think of farmlands, it's just like everything's flat. There's nothing around. It's just it, it's just fields. I mean, there are a lot of fields, but most of them aren't completely flat. They're like slightly sloped. Yeah, fair enough. Um, just because of the hills or they're like in valleys and stuff like that. And then you have like the farmhouses around and whatever. But um, in this, these rural communities, there was a place called Rymeyer's Hollow. The first Rymeyer's came from a small town, Uchte, Germany. And Heinrich and Wilhelmina Reimeyer were the first to move to the U.S. in 1841. Three years later, Henry had his brothers Christoph and Carl come over as well. So now the family is starting to settle in, in Pennsylvania. They all pitched in and got 96 acres of land in North Hopewell Township. And this area is what became known as Reimeyer's Hollow. Later, 
That's, that's a lot of land. That is a lot of land. The 96 is definitely more than five. You're not wrong. And at least four. Also correct. Just processing that one. As one does. In 1868, Henry and his wife, Rachel, had a son, Nelson, on October 1st. He had a potato farm in an isolated part of the hollow. And while people thought he was a bit strange because he was very reclusive, like some people called him a hermit, he was actually a very amiable person. He was super nice, super sweet, super polite. He just liked his space and keeping to himself. So in today's terms, understanding psychology and people much better than they did back then, he was an introvert. He just liked to stay at home and be chill. Gee, that doesn't sound like anyone that I know. Yeah, no idea who that could be. No idea. I don't know who would like being a gargoyle and just staying at home. (laughs) Me. So his home, which still stands today, was very sparsely furnished. He had a stove, a sink, a desk, and a couch downstairs with a small bedroom upstairs. He married his wife, Alice, in 1896, and they had two daughters, Beatrice and Edna. Nelson was known as a very kind man. He was always willing to help. And whether it was physical or spiritual, he uh, was a practitioner of a practice known as powwow. And this is not the Native American powwow. The Pennsylvania Dutch powwow is a form of Christian myth, myth, Christian mysticism. Me. Yeah, just Christian me. Uh, Christian mysticism featuring faith healing and prayer charms. Nelson was a large man and very strong because he was a farmer. You you are out in the fields and back then everything was done by hand, so you are shoveling and hoeing and pulling stuff, harvesting things. So he was a very, they said about six feet tall, very, very strong man, but a gentle giant. Basically built different. Not built different, just built. You know, that's a fair statement. (laughs) But he was a very gentle man. So even though he had the ability to wreck shop on you, he never would. Though he very easily could. Yes, he very, very easily could. You would not want to meet him in a dark alley. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Uh, one interesting fact about him is that he was a socialist and he had socialist literature in his house. But his political views made him even more of an outcast. So the local community, especially back then, you know, small town late 1800s, early 1900s, and he had socialist literature. Didn't go over too well. Yeah. He was a very well-known powwow doctor. He would have people coming to the house all hours of the day and night, and some sources said he even had people lining up out the door for his services. It did, unfortunately, put a strain on his marriage, and Alice separated, moving a mile away into a house that she inherited from her family. And that is where she and their daughters stayed. We're going to dive a little bit more into powwowing. It is known as German folk healing, and a lot of the practices can be called uh, something 
called active prayer. In German, it is called Brauscherei. And it focused on using prayer as a means to heal, both physically and spiritually, as well as protection and detection of curses. It's explained that you are becoming a conduit for God's power to flow through you and into whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. And being the nerd that I am, this makes me think of a lot of RPGs like World of Warcraft, where you're using divine energy and then channeling it into healing spells or something of the like. I mean, it sounds it sounds like it's basically the same thing. But in real life. Yes. And I don't know if he would actually like glow because like I'm thinking about playing WoW and you would always have like these yellow and white beams of light coming out of you. I don't know if that actually was. No idea. But but that also kind of sounds like a different version of like what you hear witch doctors. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. It kind of sounds like the same thing, just a different form of it. Yeah, you. Which is interesting because I've never heard of this before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I never. When I hear powwow, I think of Native American, not Pennsylvania Dutch. Yeah. Uh, so you could go to a powwow doctor to get warts cured, uh, get a prayer charm to protect your crops, and you could even go as far as reducing fevers and treating serious illness. So it is very similar to the concept of a witch doctor or, or um, you know, a lot of like hoodoo and voodoo type practices, um, you know, around the world. It seems like every culture has some version of this. They did have a book called The Long Lost Friend, which had a lot of cures and how to do these charms. So you could maybe consider that like their spell book. It was published by a German immigrant named John George Hohmann, H-O-H-M-A-N. So yeah, you can look up The Long Lost Friend. I'm going to look that up because I... I seem to recall that being there being another story on that one. I'll see if I can find that. Mm-hmm. Um, pro- probably because this was a well-spread practice, so it probably has come up many times. Now, there was nothing in the book about hexing or cursing people. Everything was positive, and it was very widely available to anyone who wanted a copy. It wasn't, you know, just like this strange, weird book somebody found in a gutter, and it's like you know yeah you you read it and raise the mummy or something like that is um part of what i read that i can remember is uh it was talking about someone and they had like a local quote witch in their town that people would go to to get these prayer charms and stuff that similar things that we talked about here and um it was like a lot of people didn't really believe it they were like it's just it's just a book that she's got mm-hmm. and that's that's all it is and it's, it's just it's nothing really but this person that told the story was like, I went to help her out because she had a little farm and everything. There was a cow she was getting milk from and stuff like that. And it was like as she was milking the cow, she walks away from it and the cow is still being milked. But she's not standing there. It's sort of just happening. From my knowledge, that's not in this book, but <laughs> that's crazy. It was something like that where like he witnessed something like that happening, things moving on its own wow. around this lady. It was like something that she was doing. Wow. And basically it's it's sort of like the scene in Harry Potter where the dishes are cleaning themselves. And the sweater's knitting itself, yeah. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. I, I need that so that I can just have like do all of my uh craft projects at the same time. 
You just walk into Mo's house and it's just a knitting factory. <laughs> uh, so this book, as I said, was very easily accessible. You could get it, you know, quite easily. So there were a lot of Pennsylvania Dutch farmers that had the book and used the book, even though they weren't fully powwow doctors. There are a opposite because everything has an opposite in the world in the world um and every action has a an equal but opposite reaction because i remember going to school um but the opposite of a powwow doctor is a hexerai which is a witch or a hexer and these people call upon evil forces to work against people to put curses on them uh, curse their families, their land, their livestock. And these people were obviously very secretive about the, what they were doing. And they people had a way to find them if they needed or wanted something bad to happen to someone. Because, you know, there's always like that underground whisper. But this does lead us to the next part of the story. Before we get into that, I had to, I had to do a quick Google search. Um... This book is still available today. In fact, you can buy it on Kindle or paperback on Amazon. Is it over $150 for the Kindle edition? No, it's like 16 bucks. I'm still bitter about that. Or, yeah, that's that's insane. I have seen some stuff like that's just ridiculously expensive and it shouldn't be. Yeah, it's the, um, the Encyclopedia of Murder and Violent Crime is more expensive to get on Kindle than it is to get a paper copy. Yeah. I think I brought this up before. I'm gonna bring it up again, because I'm still mad about it. Oh no. Well, Seriously, though. How can you justify charging $150 for a digital copy of something that you can just sell over and over and over again? You make one digital copy, and then you just sell it over and over and over again, and they're gonna charge $150 for that? Are you kidding me? Exactly, yes. Sorry, I had to get that out. If you don't get it out, you just bottle it up and then you have a mental breakdown. That's understandable. So you can get the long lost friend on Kindle, guys. Yes, there you can do the the little look inside thing. So you like you can see a part of it on here for like one example at the top. Here is a good remedy for hysterics or mother of fits to be used three times. Put that joint of the thumb which sits in the palm of the hand on the bare skin covering the small bone which stands above the pit of the heart and speak the following at the same time. Matrix, Patrix, lay thyself right and safe or thou I shall on the third day fill the grave. Apparently that's a cure for hysterics. It does make sense though because when you are in some sort of heightened emotional state bringing yourself to focus on something. So it's not necessary. It might not necessarily be the words themselves, but taking that and touching, touching your skin to your skin and repeating a, a very yeah. focused mantra will calm you down. There's uh, another one that's for hysterics and colds right under that. I'm reading these in they're They're pretty short. Um, this one's kind of funny to me. Oh no. This must be strictly attended to every evening. That is, whenever you pull off your shoes and stockings, run your finger in between the toes and smell it. This will certainly affect a cure. You know what? I'm good. I'd rather have a cold. I mean, you gotta try it at some point just to see. I'm good. How about this? How about this? I want you to try it and let me know how it goes. I mean, you know I'll do it. I know you You probably already do. You probably didn't need a book to tell you to do it. Fair enough. But like it's just a bunch of simple stuff like that. It doesn't require like 
like what you think of like witches brews and stuff like that. It, it's just simple stuff like that and repeating stuff. Yeah, it's focus and good energy. There's literally one that talks about like turning your shirt inside out and stuff like that. And it's, is that the cure for a dirty shirt? Uh, that is the cure for where where did I see that at? A good remedy against calumniation or slander. If you were calumniated or slandered to your very skin, to your very flesh, to your very bones, cast it back upon the false tongues. Take off your shirt and turn it wrong side out. Then run your two thumbs along your body, close under the ribs, starting at the pit of the heart, down the thighs. So if someone's telling lies about you, you just turn your shirt on inside out? Now we're going to talk about the perpetrators of the murder. The ringleader is John Blymeyer. He was born to Emmanuel and Margaret in 1895 in York, Pennsylvania. John was born with, quote unquote, a cloud over his head. His IQ had been tested at one point and he scored at low normal. So he was a step above what at the time they would call an imbecile or an idiot. You know, he was he was functional and everything like that, but he had a very low IQ. He was also plagued with bad health and very bad luck for most of his life. He grew up sickly, and then his wife had left him. Two of his three children had died, and he had uh, a lot of difficulty staying employed. He wandered aimlessly around the streets of York and the surrounding countryside, uh, like his father and grandfather before him, he practiced powwow. And at some point in his life, he became obsessed with the idea that he had a curse upon him. He was diagnosed with being neurotic and having quote-unquote witch delusions. Now, a reminder, this was the 1920s. So back then, a lot of things that weren't understood was witchcraft and no one talked about mental health or mental illness unless you were institutionalized and that was pretty much their answer if you had mental health issues you immediately were institutionalized and john was he had short stays at the state mental hospital in harrisburg pennsylvania now at one point he just walked off the campus of the hospital and walked all the way back to York, which is 25 miles away. Man was really like, all right, I'm going to head out. Hey, hey, that is exactly what he did. He just, he just left. So in 1928, he decided to try to reinvent himself. He was working at a cigar factory, and this is where he met his two accomplices. During his time at the factory, he made a trip to Marietta in Lancaster County, which is across the Susquehanna River, and he met with a woman named Emma Knopp, also known as Nellie Knopp, the Witch of Marietta. Now, would would you be mad if I abbreviated that river and just called it the Sus River? All right, I'm going to head out. I'll take that as a yes. What, what if I come up there and I just tell all the locals, like, I want to go down to the, and see the Sus River? You'll see the river, all right. From the bottom. You're just going to throw me in the river. Understandable. Blymeyer thought that he could get her to reveal whoever was cursing him. She told him to put a dollar bill in his hand. And then as the dollar bill was taken away, 
he saw the face of Nelson Rymeyer. At first, he's like, no, no way. He didn't, he didn't curse me. He's always been nice to me. But when he was five years old and suffering from something that the locals called apnema, which was probably a form of malnutrition, Rymeyer had cured him. And then when Blymeyer turned 10, he returned to Rymeyer as an employee digging potatoes for 25 cents a day. Supposedly, Nellie Knopp told Blymeyer that to undo the curse that was put upon him, he had to get a lock of Nelson's hair and Nelson's copy of The Long Lost Friend. He was to bury the lock of hair eight feet underground and then burn the book. And this would break the curse. He then went on to convince both Curry and Hess to help him get those items because they both also believed they had been cursed by Rymeyer. John Curry had led a very troubled life. He came from a family that at one point in time was very stable. He had a good mother, a good relationship with his father. His dad would take him fishing and was very loving and devoted to the family. However, his father passed away when he was five years old. And then his mother began to travel trying to find work. They eventually ended up in York. She eventually uh, remarried to a man named McLean, who was a foul-tempered drunk. He didn't work. That's never a good combo. No, it's not. Yeah, he didn't work. He would beat Curry's mother and beat John. Uh, no, no. So, um... Going back a little bit, uh, you want to take a guess at what 25 cents from 1905 to 2023, what the inflation rate is? 10 bucks. 25 cents in 1905 is the equivalent in purchasing power to about $8.50. I wasn't that far off. Look at me. And $8.50 and oh, wait, that was a day. Yeah, that was for the whole day. But then again, $8.50 would have got you a lot back then. It would have. It would have. Yeah, and he was 10. You know, child labor laws weren't in place back then. That too. <laughs> it was just a lawless wasteland. So um, the very poor home life for John uh, drove him into the streets. And that's when he got the job at the, I must said guitar factory, the cigar factory. The good old guitar factory. <laughs> that Blymeyer was working at as well. They quickly became very good friends, and Curry even stated that Blymeyer had saved his life. He had powwowed for some affliction that Curry was under, and, you know, John said that that took care of his health problem. He recovered from it. And because of that, he was very loyal to his, his friend and would do pretty much anything Blymeyer asked without even questioning it. Uh, one thing to remember is he's a 14-year-old kid, so he had a troubled home life. This man is being kind to him, helping him out. So it's a mixture of loyalty and friendship as well as, you know, a child looking for a semblance of, you know, family to cling to. People who knew Curry at this point said he was very unassuming, mild-mannered, really quiet. 
and someone who was very easily impressionable and led into something he didn't really know what was happening. So he was a little gullible and, you know, just a, a quiet kid who was kind of lost in the world. Why does it sound like me? Just very gullible. Truth. <laughs> me out here trying to figure out where the ID10T form is to, to fill it out. The ID10T form? Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> Got him. I walked right into that one. Oh, surprised. <sighs> so Wilbert Hess was a farm boy from Leaders Heights. It's a township to the south of York. And he met Blymeyer because his father crossed paths with both Blymeyer and Curry. The Hess family farm was having a lot of trouble that summer and they lost livestock, it was dry, so the crops were failing, and everyone in the family had been getting sick with various illnesses. So it was a huge wave of bad luck. Wilbert Hess's aunt, Ida, and his father, Milton, were also having a land dispute at the time. Ida wanted a right of way to get to her farm, and apparently this was on the property boundary between the two farms. Milton didn't want to allow her to have the land, and a big family fight broke out, and not the kind you have at Thanksgiving. Are family fights common at Thanksgiving? Mo, are you okay? It's like a running joke in the world. Like there's, they, they had commercials about it and stuff like that. Do you, do you? Where was I? I don't know. Fair enough. Yeah, like you know, when your family gets together, someone's gonna be embarrassing, another person's gonna fight. I, you know. I mean, you're probably right. I mean, you, not probably. No, you're right. You're right. But I just didn't realize that was a common thing. That people <laughs> were just like, time for the good old family brawl. Let me get my boxing gloves. Well, no, not a brawl. <laughs> n- not all fights are brawls. I hear fight and I think throwing hands. No, like arguments and bickering and... Fair enough. I love how you just, like, immediately now I just expect that your family's Thanksgiving is in, like, a boxing ring. Yours isn't? We're not allowed to have family reunions without informing the SWAT team. (laughs) So there was suspicion at the time that Milton's family was hexed by Aunt Ida. And she denied it. And many of the people sided with her and they were like, she would never hex you guys. Come on, chill. So Wilbert's mother, Alice, was super superstitious like many people back then and was convinced that there was a hex on the family. So when Blymeyer entered the mix, he reinforced what she was suspecting that there was a hex, but he said it wasn't Aunt Ida. It was Nelson Rymeyer and that they needed to get a lock of his hair and his book to break the hex. So all of this talk and speculation that Nelson had cursed them reached its conclusion in the fall of 1928. Blymeyer, Curry, and the entire Hess family, well, not the entire, Milton's family um, decided that they must act. Aunt Ida was not involved. So on November 26th, Rymeyer and Curry. Aunt Ida out here built different. She's just throwing hands. Poor Aunt Ida. All she wanted was a road to her farm. Blymeyer and Curry with um, Milton and Alice's son, Clayton. Clayton drove them to a place called Hametown, 
where Blymeyer and Curry walked to Rymeyer Hollow. They stopped at the home of Mrs. Rymeyer and asked where they could find Nelson. So if you remember from earlier, uh, Mrs. Rymeyer and Nelson were separated and she was living about a mile away. Uh, so it wasn't far. It was probably still easy for him to see his girls, but you know, they were, their marriage was on not great terms. She said that unless he was away on business, he would be down at his place about a mile or so down in the hollow. So they went down to Nelson's house. They knocked on the door and he opened, seeing it was friends and customers and everything. He invited them in for a drink, maybe to talk, see what was going on, chit chat, have a good time. Uh, he and Blymeyer stayed up rather late into the night talking about farming and powwow and stuff going on in the community. And then after they had finished, it was quite late. So Nelson invited the pair of them to stay for the night. You know, he was just like, oh, yay, friends, because while he's an introvert, he a nice guy. That just, that just makes things even more sad knowing what happened. He was just like, hey, my friends are here. Yeah. And he's just a sweet guy. I gotta be like this. He's just minding his own business on the farm, bro. Why did it be like this? Yeah. So the next morning, after they had breakfast, so he even gave him breakfast, uh, the two of them went back to Leaders Heights and told the Hess family that they needed more people to take Rymeyer down because he, he was a big dude. It was not going to be easy to take him down. So Blymeyer convinced Milton and Alice to send Wilbur and they were going to get the job done. So it was the night of November 27th. Blymeyer, Curry, and Hess were driven down to Rymeyer Hollow, and they walked up to Nelson's hat. Nelson's hat? Yes, they walked up to his hat. They just walked up to his hat. Hello, anybody home? Knocking on his hat. Uh, so, and then Remy from Ratatouille just pops out. So Nelson, they walked up to Nelson's house and knocked on the door to wake him up. Nelson came to the bedroom window on the second floor, opened it up, and, you know, he swung open the shutters. He had a lantern and asked who was there. Blymeyer said it was them again and that they needed to come inside because they thought they had left something the previous night. Rymeyer had no reason to doubt their reasoning. He just let them in. And after a little, you know, a few moments, a little like, hey, you know, whatever, uh, they said that they wanted his book. Nelson wasn't sure what they meant. He's like, my book? I have lots of books. So uh, he's like, what book are you talking about? And Blymeyer was like, don't play dumb. Give him the book. And like, it seems, as you said, things escalated quickly. At this point, there are different versions of what happens because there were, you know, just different accounts from everybody who was there. But we're going to go with the most cohesive one because not everything makes sense. I feel like if they had just, you know, said, I think someone's put a curse on us. Have you ever heard of this book? And, you know, tried to just slowly talk about it, you know? They might could have figured it out better, but no, they just went straight to violence. Yeah, sadly. They're in the kitchen. Rymeyer goes to put some wood in the stove. It, you know, keep it warm, maybe heat up some tea. As he does this, Blymeyer shouts 
to grab him and all three men jumped him. There was a very violent fight uh, with Blymeyer hitting him over the head with, oh, hitting him over the back with a chair. Broke the chair. They got him to the ground and Rymeyer is still fighting and struggling. And you have to think he is bewildered. He has no idea what's going on. They're demanding a book. He doesn't know what book they're talking about. He just let some people stay over the night before. Like, what is going on? Not only that, these are people he considered friends. Exactly. Exactly. And now they're here attacking him and he has no clue what's going on. Yeah. So at this point, Curry grabbed a piece of wood from near the stove and hits him on the back of the head. And at that point... Rymeyer went limp. It was such a powerful blow that in the autopsy, they found it had broken through his skull and fragments of bone lacerated his brain. So after this, Blymeyer and Curry tied his hands and feet. Uh, they had purchased 25 feet of rope that they cut into five foot lengths to subdue him and tie him up. They also used a piece to tie it around his neck in an effort to strangle him. And after a while, they finally realized he was dead. So the um, the laceration to the brain caused a massive hemorrhage. So that's not really something that you're going to come back from. Yeah, no, no. Um, at the realization, he was gone. It's reported that Blymeyer said... If he's dead, the hex is done. We're good. The witch is dead. Now, there's some conjecture that he might not have been dead, but just unconscious. Uh, but that, again, is conjecture. The boys found where he kept his money, which was under the third step on the stairs to the second floor. No one really knows how they figured that out. <laughs> like... Did they hear that from somebody? Did they just tear the house apart? I'm not sure. Uh, but it could have been, like you said, tearing the house apart and just kind of going through stuff. And then one of them found like a loose board or something on the steps whenever they were going up the steps, possibly. Exactly. But at this point, Blymeyer had the idea that they needed to cover their tracks and burn the house down. They threw oil on top of Rymeyer's body and all over the area in the kitchen and just struck a match and left the house. Through the windows, they could see flickering flames and they thought they saw him moving around in the house, thinking maybe he was just unconscious and now he was trying to get out of the house. Not sure, but the house actually didn't burn down. Something made the fire smother out. Some people said it was a godly act. Others said it was witchcraft. It's not really something that's ever really been proven either way. It's still interesting if the fire just like randomly went out. This this is suspicious. Well, I mean, depending if it doesn't have fuel, if it doesn't have oxygen, it, you know, fires don't always just rage and burn. But... Fair enough. One would think that a wood a wooden house would, would go up pretty easily, though. But. Yeah, a wooden house and a bunch of oil, unless it wasn't actually oil and they put something down there that wasn't inflammatory. Uh, like when you light hand sanitizer, it just lights and then goes yeah. out. Yeah, so like depending on what they covered the body in, maybe it just wasn't highly flammable. Yeah, it could be. Or, you know, witchcraft. Probably witchcraft. 
<laughs> it was witchcraft. So now it was Thanksgiving Day, November 29th. And a neighbor named David Vanover was taking a walk after nice Thanksgiving dinner and heard the animals in Rymeyer's barn making a ton of noise, which was not common. They hadn't been fed or had anything to drink, and they were just trying to get food and water. So David, being a really good neighbor, fed them. A mailman came by and said that Mr. Rymeyer hadn't gotten his mail in a couple days. So Vanover was like, okay. So he went and grabbed another neighbor named Oster Goldfilter, and they went down to the house to see if everything was all right. They knocked on the door, didn't get an answer, so they they went in. And that's where they found Nelson Rymeyer's burnt body. The kitchen was black with soot, and Vanover, uh, Vanover immediately jumped on his horse and rode to Brista's Rymeyer's farm and told her that something very bad had happened. That that sounds to me like is exactly what you said. Is like, if that was oil, the oil burnt up, and then once the fuel was gone, that was it. Because if people are delivering mail, feeding his animals, then there's nothing wrong with the outside of the house at all. You can't even tell there was a fire. Yeah, it sounds like it was localized to the kitchen. Yeah, so it sounds like whatever they threw, that's the only thing that burnt, and uh, other than the body. Police found that the kitchen floor had almost completely burned away and Nelson's body was laying over a floor joist and had been caught by a hanging potato bin that he had hung in the basement for curing potatoes. The police said that if he hadn't been caught by the bin, the whole house probably would have gone up in flames. So... Because he was kind of centralized, he burned up, the flyer split a little bit, and sizzled out. Well, there's the explanation. You just gotta be patient, Crackle. Nelson Rymeyer was laid to rest on the 5th of December of 1928 at Sadler's Church in Stewartstown. The crowd was so large, they had to open the windows in the church so people could hear the funeral proceedings because they couldn't all fit. After the funeral, Alice told police that Blymeyer and Curry had stopped by her house looking for Nelson the night before. So they rounded those two men up and questioned them. And they outright admitted that they did the crime. They said it had to be done because Rymeyer hexed them and they had to end the hex. So they killed him. They were not apologetic, especially in the case of John Blymeyer. He felt he had absolutely no other alternatives. Uh, the three of them all confessed and were put in jail at the York County Prison, and they then had to stand trial for the murder. The trials started on January 7th of 1929, and John My- John Meyer, yes. Yes, John Meyer. John Blymeyer was the first to the courtroom. His court case lasted from January 7th to January 9th. It was presided by Judge Sherwood. And Herbert Cohen was the appointed pro bono lawyer for Blymeyer. Judge Sherwood was very firm at the beginning of the trial that there was no talk, to, there, like there was going to be nothing about hexing or witchcraft or powwows mentioned. They were going to prosecute the case as a robbery gone wrong. But unfortunately, in the testimony of Clayton Hess, Wilbert's brother, the word witch was used. 
there goes that out the window. So it went on public record. Cohen seized the opportunity and went on about witchcraft and powwowing. So when Mr. Herman, the prosecutor, objected, Judge Sherwood said that he had opened the door and now it had to be allowed. Cohen, whose defense was insanity, could say that Blymeyer was insane because of his belief in witchcraft and powwow. He argued that Blymeyer's life was full of misery and shadow, and he was the body of a grown man, but the mind of a child who didn't quite understand what was wrong. So he argued to acquit Blymeyer on the grounds of insanity and send him to an institution where he could get relief for his imaginings. Interesting way to put it, but... Um, That's an interesting way to say lobotomy. Well, instead, Blymeyer was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison, which I personally would... Uh, agree with. I don't think he was insane. Yeah, he, he just that's just what he believed, so... Yeah, it'd be like, oh, you can't go to jail because you believe in Christianity, so because that was your belief system, you're insane and you have to go to an institution. Yeah. It's just that it was a different set of beliefs. He believed in powwow. It was basically like his religion, so... Exactly. Exactly. John Curry was the next... A trial. His court session lasted from the 10th to the 11th. Uh, Walter Von Bayman was appointed as his attorney, and he said he gave very little credibility to the notion of witch witchcraft and powwow. And his argument to the jury and his approach for the case was that he was a victim of social neglect and parental abuse. When he addressed the jury at one point, he turned around and pointed to Curry's mother and said, there is the person responsible for this boy being where he is today. And with that, the mother who already was sobbing to the point that she stuffed her apron in her mouth to muffle her cries, collapsed on the courtroom floor. It, it, I, feel like, I feel like the lawyer went a little too far there, but all right. I would agree. I would agree. I'm surprised the judge didn't say something about that, but all right. I I think that that was not a a good use of his law degree. No, not, not at all. The Curry trial set the record for brevity, and he was convicted, convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. You'll note his trial went from the 10th to 11th. It was a two-day trial, including conviction. Robert Hess's trial was next. His court session was from January 11th to the 12th. Uh, Harvey Gross was retained by Milton Hess to represent his son in court. So apparently he was on retainer for the family, which means that they have an established lawyer-client relationship with the lawyer. Essentially, in exchange for upfront fees, you always have access to that lawyer. They're kind of like on holds. So if you get in trouble, you have your lawyer. I know it's probably a good thing to like have a lawyer, but like on the other hand, it's like, what are you planning on doing that you just got a lawyer on standby? Well, I mean, he... The Hesses did have a farm, which means they had a business, so yeah. it could have been like yeah. a business lawyer. I'm, I'm not completely sure of the details on that. I and mean, that's, that's probably what it was, but it just sounds kind of funny that like you just have a lawyer on hold. Yeah, yeah. Gross wasn't sure how 
he was going to win this trial because the other two went so quickly and there was so much momentum. There was so much public knowledge about it in the area. He was just like, great, this is awesome. It was not until he cross-examined Mrs. Hess and asked her when she had heard that Rymeyer had been killed. Uh, she said it was the next morning when her son Wilbert, after coming back from his brother's house, told her, Mother, I didn't want to go down there last night, and I didn't want to do what they got me to do. But the man is dead. I hope you shall get better. And then Gross realized that he had a narrative. The Hess boy was the sacrificial lamb. He went down to the hollow to break the curse and save his family. At one point during the trial, he pointed to Mrs. Hess and said that poor woman no more wanted to send her boy down to the hollow that night than old Abraham wanted to lead his son up to that altar. Only in this case, God did not provide a substitute for the sacrifice. So this metaphor was incredibly powerful to the jury, and it worked. He was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to 10 years in prison instead of life. Curry was paroled after 10 years. Hess served his full 10-year sentence, and Blymeyer served 23 years before being paroled. They all went on to live somewhat quiet lives. However, their stories did not end after they left prison. I'm surprised that, like, given what they did and everything, they let them leave. Yeah. I mean, I guess it could be one of those things where you could argue that, like, they felt that they did what they had to do, and now there's no motive for them to do it again. Yeah, the the criminal justice system is a very complicated uh, thing, even today. And you have to think back then, this was the 1920s. So things were a lot different back then. It was a whole lot different. Yeah, even today, there are a lot of things that to the general public may seem stupid or outlandish or like, how could that possibly happen? But there's there's so much that kind of goes into the process and so many things that, you know, the rules you have to follow. And yeah, I guess it's, it's kind of like the, the Gary Plochet story that we talked about, where it's like after what he did, they determined that like there was no other motive for him to do this again. So he's all right to let go. Exactly. So if you are a model prisoner, um, you have no, no possibility of reoffending, etc. They're going to be a lot more lenient on you than somebody who goes to prison and kills three people. Yeah. Uh, when released, Curry was 24 years old and went on to be a. Um, let's see. He joined the military, and he was actually on General Eisenhower's staff and helped to draft the plans for the invasion of Normandy. He also went on to be a painter. He learned to paint while he was in jail. And some homes in York County still have artwork painted by him to this day. By all accounts, he was a good man, an honest man. And he went on to eventually own a turkey farm. He had um, Angus Steers, a couple other enterprises. Uh, he died from a heart attack in 1963 when he was shoveling a load of corn at his farm. People said he was very hardworking, kind, uh, just a very, you know, farm-oriented, hardworking man. Yeah, it's messed up that like they they did that damn like he he pretty much lost ten years. I, I have opinions. 
but I feel like I don't think Wilbert and John would have committed any kind of a crime at all, let alone murder. Yeah. Had it not been for Blymeyer. Yeah, no, he was definitely the like the the head of everything, it seems. So Wilbert Hess served his full term in prison and he lived as quiet of a life as he could. He worked, he raised a family, and he died in 1979 at the age of 79. Now we circle back to Blymeyer. He served 23 years of his life sentence before being paroled in 1953. He came back home and after visiting with his brother and talking for 45 minutes, his brother said that man would do the same thing today. There was no change, no remorse. However, this is where the story takes an interesting turn for him. A year before the Bly the a year before the Rymeyer murder, a young girl you good? No, my mouth is just like, I give, I, my mouth's like, you know what? Episode's over. Bye. We, we're now turning to mush. It's just an hour of that with me occasionally commenting <laughs> like, hmm, yes, good point. I agree. Excellent observation. Yes. <laughs> I forget what the context was, but I was in a meeting today. It was an internal meeting. So it was just co-workers, but I was like, yeah, there's just circus music going through my head at all times. Mm -hmm. Just monkey banging the cymbals. So a year before the Rymeyer murder, a young girl, Gertrude Rudy, was found dead on the railroad tracks. The 16-year-old was shot with a shotgun at close range. There was speculation that Blymeyer is the one who pulled the trigger, but no lawman ever caught up with him. It's said that she would go to his place because he wasn't with his wife at the time, and apparently he had gotten her pregnant and wanted her to disappear. One of his family members reported that Blymeyer's shotgun just mysteriously disappeared right before her body was found. They speculate that he put her body and the gun on the tracks, expecting a train to come through, take the body, get rid of all the evidence. But a signal man or a switch man saw something in the tracks and called for the train to stop before they went and ran it over and it turned out to be her body. During the trial, Judge Sherwood asked him about her and Blymeyer cried, saying that he didn't do it, to which the judge replied that if he knew Blymeyer had done it, he would have sent him to the electric chair. However, Blymeyer was never convicted or put on trial for anything to do with the murder, and it has never been solved. He died of pneumonia in 1972, alone, and his family wanted nothing to do with him. They called for pallbearers for his funeral. Uh, they called for pallbearers for his funeral, and every one of his family members refused. They didn't even go to the funeral. That's, that's a big oof. So they actually had to get... That's how you know you messed up. They had to get strangers off the street to be pallbearers. What, what would have happened if they had just been like, no stranger, like the people that knew him, the people that they asked was just like, you know, I've heard of that man. Nah, I'm good. I mean, they eventually probably would have found somebody who'd never heard of him. Possibly, yes. She had to go a couple states over. <laughs> yeah, well, it 
it seems that the universe did catch up to him in the end. So the murder and the trial brought a lot of national focus to the community and it opened the door, so to speak, on Pennsylvania Dutch culture. Pennsylvania Dutch were kind of viewed as strange world people with these kind of archaic and supernatural beliefs. Uh, it also highlighted that people still believed in witchcraft in the 20th century. And because of this, there was sort of a uh, erasure of this part of Pennsylvania Dutch. Uh, the stigma of the murder also stayed with the area. Uh, even having the name Hex House attached to this place, um, which led to it being Hex Hollow. The descendants of Rymeyer want to end the bad stigma that has haunted the place for years. They want to let people know that Nelson is a good, kind, big-hearted man. He used his belief in God to help everyone around him, and he was not an evil person. It makes no sense that he would, like, go around hexing people and cursing them, especially when they were all people he helped previously. Yeah, from what, what we've read or and heard here, it's like, that it just doesn't make sense at all. Why, if he hexed these people, why would he just be like, hello, friends, come in for tea? Like, why would he heal them to hex them? Exactly. And, and unless they did something to him that he didn't even realize, so they thought... He must have found out what we did, and now he hexed us or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. It's messed up, man. But there are rumors that the house is haunted, but there isn't a ton of concrete sightings and things like that. The family, like, the, the house is still there. The family hasn't tried to, like, cover things up or anything. They... They do want his this story out there. They do want people to know what an amazing person he was and the tragic end to his life. But you can still, to this day, it's not marked, but the house still stands and it's semi-open to the public. So if you know where you're going and what you're looking for, you can go to the house. You can, you can see where this tragedy happened. As Ranger says, I hope this was a good story, even though it's a sad one. And I would agree with that. Yes. Yeah, it's a, sad, but it, it was a well-written story and it's a good story. Yeah. Uh, I, Ranger always does a great job. And yes, it's it's one of those ones where it, I'm not sure why. Maybe it's just the, the kind-hearted person in Pennsylvania, but it makes me think of Stanley Detweiler, which is one of those cases that will always stick with me. Yeah. And mentioning that, yeah, it, it this does sound like a similar story in in the ways of like the victim being a good person and didn't really know what was going on kind of thing. Yeah, died for absolutely no reason. Yeah. But that is the story of the Hex Hollow murder. My my question was not actually answered. Um if there actually was a hex on this family they were like no it's it's Rymeyer. it's not it's not ida that that put the curse on it what if it was ida oh snap we no we didn't go back to her like nothing else was said about her so yeah i i don't know because what if they got it wrong well they definitely would have gotten it wrong 
And one of the things that you kind of have to look at is the curse continued. He he was cursed because he went to prison. And when he got out, his family had cut him off. Yeah. So it, it kind of makes you wonder, like, if that was a thing, then maybe he saw Rymeyer and maybe that was like, this is the person that will help you, not the person who has cursed you. And then he killed the one person that could have helped. Yeah. That's sad. Yeah. He could have he could have got it backwards. That is so sad. Yeah, that makes it worse. Oh, like I literally, you know, that feeling where literally your heart gets heavier. Yeah. Like it just sunk down into my stomach. Yeah, because I mean, when you think about it, like that could have been a possibility with him being a good man, wanting to always help people and stuff like it possible. I mean, and Krakow made it worse. And Krakow made it worse. Yay. My job here is done. As always, make sure to check out our website for all of the show notes, sources, and more information at thesquonkandthehag.com. And we would also love and appreciate your support by either leaving a review on iTunes or through small monthly donations using the viewer support link in the description. And if you don't subscribe, make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast network to get notified of new episodes every Thursday. All right, Krakow, you ready? Goodbye.